0: You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast.
1: Okay, so I have a question for you. When you work with clients, what are the things that you do to make it easier for them to work with you and implement their investment plan?
2: Okay, I've never been asked that question. Question before, Um, so so a lot of the work that we do requires action on their part, right? It requires that I can't implement every single thing, right? If we're managing investments, we can make the trades and do those things, but I can't do everything. I can't uh, change their four hundred one k investments if I recommend that, right? I I don't have their login and password, and even if I did, I'm not going to log in and just do that for them. Um, So sometimes they have to take action. I go, hey, I recommend that you do this thing you need to now you now have homework, right? And so what what I'll try to do is make sure that we have a representative from our team at their table at the client's table, sitting next to them when they're doing that homework assignment, right? It, it might be, hey, let's go. Um, let's go change those investment options in your 401k because it's misaligned to your goals. Well, I could just say, all right, go do that. See ya. This is what these are the funds i recommend. What I'll do instead is say, okay, either I or someone on the team, we're going to set up a Zoom call. Um, we're going to get on line with you. We're going to show you exactly which buttons to press. That way, you don't have to to think too hard about it. Um, but removing the extra steps, I think that's really important. How many? What can we do to to make it easier? One time, I had a um, a client call in and. They spoke to an assistant and they said, Hey, you know, I can't find this piece of information for this outside investment that I have. Yeah, you know, I think it was like cost basis or something. I don't have the cost basis for this investment. It wasn't an investment we managed. And the assistant goes, Oh, well, you can call them. Their number is 1 800, da 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 da. And I said, No, no, you gave them work. Now, the reality is that, that was the work that they were going to do on their own if they didn't call us, right? And and when it's not, we, we didn't, we didn't have that information, but what we could have done is a much better experience. That's going to help them get the information that they need. That's going to help them make better decisions is to say, Oh, hang on right now. I'm going to conference them in. We'll talk to them together and I'll ask them for it.
1: Right. Make it easy,
2: make it as easy as possible, make it as easy as possible. So I, we do that not as, um, you know, not in the way that Amazon does that, because it's not a sales tactic. It's how can we help our clients take action in the way that they say that they want to? Right. How can we make that easy for them?
1: One of the things that I've done historically is to set up investment savings automatically. So yeah, that's that, uh, a big one. Somebody too. doesn't have to make decisions every single time they want to invest. It's just ongoing. Yeah, limit I think future
2: decisions. Yeah. Every yep. every decision that I make now is going to have a tree uh it's it's going to grow branches um of other decisions that need to be made or will be forced to be made in the future and if we can keep that a more straight line with with fewer mm-hmm. stops um then then that's going to be helpful.
1: Okay, I have a question for you. All right. Another one? So are uh, yeah, okay, so are there are there addictive experiences that you've fallen into, uh, that, you know, you've been targeted, you know, in other words, there, there was some marketing, there was some game that was played on you and you succumbed to it. You, you, you know, you, there was a biases that was played on you and Mm. you fell for it and you recognize it now.
2: You know, I'm sure that there has been plenty. Um, you know, I would say like, um, it's been a long time, but when Uh mobile apps, when the games were out, when like, uh, like angry birds first came out, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. So like when, when the casual mobile games started to first happen, like kind of around the time in the 2009 10, when everybody all of a sudden had iPhones, um, when those came out, I'm, I'm so addicted to winning. Like I want to win. And once they started to implement in-app purchases, in these games where oh, you can just spend three bucks and you get this like little extra tool that exists within the game. That's going to make you better at the game. Oh, that'd be bad because I download a game for free and then spend $30 over the course of six months, you know, <laughs> getting better at this stupid little game. It, it, I don't even need to be playing.
1: I I have fallen prey to, where, you know, in buying a car, you know, when they give you the keys, you know, oh, just driving around, you know, see how it's going. And then you, you get in it and you feel like, yeah, oh, I like this car. And you don't want to, like, not have the mm-hmm. You don't want to have, not have it. Mm-hmm. You know, I had one guy say, just take it home for the weekend. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's a cheating. That's a bad idea. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm obviously going to have to buy this car now.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, it was yours the second he suggested that.
1: Yeah, 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 it was, uh, well, that was tough. So I, I fell for it.
2: Well, there's a lot of things that people fall for. And that's one of the things that we talked about today with our guest, Jen Kleinhens. We discussed how companies use behavioral science to make you make purchases, uh, decision making fallacies that lead to faulty choices, and how to evolve, how to avoid falling into those traps. Um, Jen Kleinhans is a recognized authority in applied behavioral science. She's founder and managing director of marketing and product design firm called Choice Hacking, which helps global businesses ethically apply behavioral science and psychology principles. She's the host of a podcast called Choice Hacking and the author of the book, Choice Hacking, How to Use Behavioral Science and Psychology to Create an Experience that Sings. I know I learned a lot from our conversation with Jen. I hope you do too. My name's Sanger Smith with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly hey jen
0: hi hi guys how are you Uh,
2: doing great i i was looking at your instagram earlier today and i was fascinated by the uh the peloton post
0: oh yeah the one that just went up
2: yeah yeah so you like broke down how basically like why there's this craze uh for peloton and um and and it was fascinating because I got like kind of addicted to exercise last year and um avoid of all of these you know choice hacking measures that Peloton put on, but I started to get into cycling and and I noticed a lot of people were into to Peloton, for example. And uh they're like a different breed, like cyclists are crazy. But Peloton folks are a different level of, you know. No hate to anyone who's who's addicted to the five AM spins on
1: Peloton. <laughs> the, this episode of Decidedly brought to you by Peloton. <laughs>
2: I, yeah. I don't know if that's a ringing endorsement or not. You know, well, but
0: it's it's. I kind of think of it as like the CrossFit of like indoor exercise.
2: That's such you know, a and good way I I say it. this
0: as somebody who does Peloton, but like I feel like in terms of like a scale, I am probably like middle area <laughs> versus some people get really really into it. I think yeah I'm, yeah <laughs> I'm a fan, but I'm not like a crazy person so
1: <laughs> so walk- walk through those those uh because they use some biases right and and that's really your background in, in, when you look at being sort of a, an authority in behavioral psychology is is how do different companies influence our decision making what are they doing how are they leaning into certain biases that we have uh to direct choices and decisions. So what is what did you see that Peloton was sure. doing?
0: Sure. I mean, I, I think, first of all, so yes, I mean, I, I work in behavioral science and psychology in customer experience. So that could be anything from marketing and advertising to product experience, or in this case, it's, it's mainly the product experience of Peloton. And what I found is, you know, you do have some businesses that'll do things consciously, right? Like they hire behavioral scientists and they go through the whole process and they say like, oh, yes, very deliberately, we're going to do all these different things. But the interesting thing about Peloton is the way they designed their experience. They actually looked at places like Apple, like Netflix, like Spotify. So they looked at what they would consider sort of I guess, addictive experiences. And I say addictive when I say Peloton, but like in an ethical way, right? They're not telling you to do anything, you know, within bounds, right? There is such a thing as exercise addiction. And that's obviously not what I mean. But, you know, with with Peloton, I think they were really smart in that they created like this digital ecosystem around this idea of exercise, because they knew it would be a challenge, I mean, everybody, I think, has one of those like Nordic Track or what was the Bowflex? Do you remember the Bowflex? So everybody would oh, throw yeah. their clothes on the Bowflex after you pay like, you know, just 30 payments of
1: $30. Yeah, we had a treadmill that we stopped calling the treadmill and stopped and started calling the clothes yeah. hanger because it would just hang.
0: We just put yeah, on it. definitely. I mean, and I think that they saw the potential in, you know, the first thing is a social connection, right? So there's a thing called a parasocial relationship. Uh, relationship, So you see this a lot with YouTubers, with celebrities, it's kind of like a one way relationship, right? And they, they knew that people love to be social, that making something social, we know from behavioral science research and things, um, is a good way to make it sticky. And so one of the ways that they did that was through the relationships with the instructors. So you get these instructors on and there's different instructors for different, you know, like, like flavors of music. And, you know, there's different ages and sort of different approaches to how the actual classes work. And personally, when I first started using Peloton, I would I had to go through the whole like, oh, so and so is the most popular and take, you know, he or she's course or their, their classes and go like, OK, this is too they're encouraging me too much. I need someone to like yell at me. You know, the people have different sort of like <laughs> motivational styles um, and where people were like, you know, making it a very like soulful experience that might really work for somebody who was into something like soul cycle or, you know, like that's just like what speaks to them from a motivational level. But for me, I, I just wasn't really responding to it. So when I finally found instructors that I enjoyed, I enjoyed the playlist I was really into it. And then you start to, again, you know, go back to parasocial relationship. It's like, well, I sign up for this course or this class and I don't want to disappoint my instructor, even though they don't know you're there, you know, it doesn't make any difference to them. I mean, I I was uh, reading one of these uh, New York Times articles about Peloton kind of at the height of COVID and sort of the power of Peloton. And they had instructors that would fill, I mean, 25,000 plus people in a, in a class. And that's, that could fill Madison Square Garden completely, completely sold out. And then some. Right. So that's a lot of people kind of doing something together as a social act, which obviously during sort of covid lockdowns and things like people were really craving that. But that social element, I think, is something that I mean, it's really baked into kind of like the core of the product. And it's so important to make something social. Um, you know, they they do a couple other things when it comes to the social component of it as well. So, you know, you can schedule rides with friends, you can share things, you know, you get badges that you can share with other people so you start to get achievements. So that's kind of, you know, like the basis of gamification. Right. I get a badge. I feel good about myself. I'm motivated to kind of stay on the bike or get on the bike. Um, One thing they do, which is very powerful, um, it's kind of out of the realm of the social bit, but it's more into something called goal gradient. So goal gradient is this principle that basically says the closer we get to an end point, like the, the more we want to keep going, the faster we go. Right. So the research was basically around like mice and they would get mice in a maze and they found that the closer they got to the cheese, the faster they would go. And you, you see it with things like coffee loyalty cards. So if you've ever been to like a coffee shop and you used to get like the little paper cards and somebody would like, oh, here's your paper card. And they would stamp it twice and you go like, oh, I must be so special. They love yeah. me. Oh, they're going to give me two stamps. No, that's the strategy um, because they know the closer you get, the more you want to go in. Oh, no, I have to go to this coffee shop, not that coffee shop because I'm so close to my goal. And they found that with loyalty programs.
1: Wait, so that's – are you saying that that's a purposeful sort of trained strategy to kind of give you a little extra stamp as you get closer to it, the end? It's an
0: interesting thing, isn't it? Because I think it, to say that people are doing it consciously is a stretch. Like I, I don't think that the barista knows about the gold gradient okay. effect and that it actually does make it faster. Oh, okay.
1: I didn't know if it was in the training I or mean, something. I mean, who
0: knows? It could it could be out there someplace. <laughs> Maybe it is. But, you know, really it's it, – I think it's something like when you look at sales and customer experience and retail stores and things like that, there's so much stuff that they do that has a scientific reason behind it. Like there's a reason why it works, but they don't necessarily know that that's what's happening. Yeah. They Like if you take Ikea, for example, like Ikea, obviously, I mean, the world's biggest furniture store. They do a ton of things around behavioral science, but I, they never, as far as I know, they don't consciously say – like, oh, it, what about this psychological principle? Let's, let's see if we can experiment with it. Really, it just came from like 60 or 50 years of, hey, if we you know stack up our products in a certain way, if we price things a certain way, we just know it'll work because so many people come through the store. If it doesn't work, you know like retail stores especially are very um, transaction driven. So if it drives less sales, they'll change it. Walmart's the same way. So Sam Walton wasn't a behavioral scientist, but Sam Walton used a lot of behavioral science principles without really knowing it when he was designing Walmart. So it kind of the same thing.
1: What what were some of those, what were some of those behavioral principles?
0: Yeah. So it's an interesting one. So Walmart, they, they do a couple of things really well from a high level. They're actually really good at interrupting our behavioral scripts Right. So behavioral scripts are basically things like if you go into a restaurant, you know, they're going to come up and say, do you want any appetizers? And then do you want dinner? And then, oh, do you want something, you know, for dessert? That's a behavioral script. That's what you expect when you go into a restaurant. Yeah. If you went into a restaurant and they said, "Uh, would you like to start with a dessert? You would say like, oh, I don't know. I'm all turned around now because that's not what I expected. It's not what I trained myself to do. Um, But Walmart does that in the way that they sort of arrange the store. So basically, you come in like kind of an opposite end. They were they were one of the first companies to really do this idea of you know you have like the dual entrances and a lot of stores you would come in the right and go right to left. Yeah. In Walmart, you tend to go left right. to right. Yeah. Um,
1: oh yeah, they, yeah. I just I didn't I didn't really think about that, but you're absolutely right.
0: Yeah, it's it's just one of those things again. I mean, like they just try things and it happens. The other example um, would be if you kind of go through Walmart, they have something. Um, called oh now my brain action alley there you go my brain's not working it's the end of the day um so action alley is when you go down the big aisles in walmart and they they have those big bins in the middle of the aisles and they're full of like dvds or like tvs that are on sale that's action alley and it's kind of kind of clutters up the space that they have these big kind of like bins and displays in the middle of an aisle but that's where they put the sales it's where they put the things that are going to kind of make you stop and go oh well, that's really interesting. I get two DVDs for three bucks or whatever it is now. Um, and actually when they went through, God, it was a, a little while ago now, they went through kind of an innovation project at Walmart and they they were looking at places like the Apple store and they said, oh, it's so clean in there. And like, that's what we need. We need to get rid of all of these bins. Let's get rid of Action Alley. And they did and their sales went you know, into the basement like in terms of what they had been doing and they brought it back, I think within two years. So it's something that's really effective for them. And it kind of speaks to this idea of like when you're making decisions as a shopper, they're not necessarily the most rational. And a lot of times, you know, what you think might work in your mind, which makes logical sense, well, that's not really what people do because we don't really behave in a very logical or sort of rational way. So a couple examples from Walmart.
1: So, so I have a question for you on that. So, there are two. You have two examples of retailers that, that really have approached that buying decision or that that consumer experience very differently, right? Well, one is Walmart. They're putting a lot of uh, I don't want to say clutter in a bad way, but they're they've got Action Alley. They've got all this mm-hmm. you know, stuff everywhere, as opposed to the Apple Store, which is almost the opposite, very minimalistic, mm-hmm. and yet they're both working. So, so what? Behaviors or biases is one playing on that the other decided to abandon and play on a completely different one because you can't play on both of those at the same time. But what are they doing?
0: Yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, if you think about the products that Apple sells, I mean, yes, they're they're ubiquitous. Like so many people have an iPhone now, but they are a luxury product. I mean, when you position them against like, yeah, exactly, they're expensive. I mean, I for years and years I had the first iPhone all the way up until I think two years ago. I had every single iPhone that came out, and eventually I just was like, "What am I doing? This is so expensive." I guess I just hit a certain age, and I was like, "You know what? Do I really need this?" <laughs> um, and I switched to Android, and you know, it's basically an identical experience, but I still miss my iPhone, right? Because it's like a luxurious experience. It's like got a weight in your hand. Like the product is very um, tactile. I mean, the design is something that. You know, Apple as a company has always really been, you know, cognizant of. They they want to feature their products. So first of all, they're selling something that's a more like upscale product. So yeah. another analogy with that would be like clothing stores. The more expensive a clothing store is, the fewer clothes you see in the store. You know what I mean? Like it's not like a TJ Maxx where you go and you have to kind of go through all the racks and things. It, and that's sort of is a that it's cue. Is that
2: because yeah. it's it's going to require more confidence it people are less likely to whimsically per- make a thousand dollar purchase than they are a one dollar purchase you know yeah I, I mean
0: potentially yeah
2: i can understand if they put the um the you know 50 cent candy in the checkout line i will just ah, get candy yeah sure shovel it in the shopping cart <laughs> if they put you know a bunch of tvs up at the front nobody's doing that nobody's whimsically saying yeah give me a plasma screen when they're checking out at Target.
1: it is <laughs> an impulse buy right yeah
0: Yeah. You'd be surprised how many people will impulse buy a TV though. (laughs) It's it's part of the thing with Walmart. It's, you know, Walmart has big carts. And part of the reason they expanded the size of the carts was so you could go to the grocery store or the, you know, Walmart and get anything at Walmart. Right. But a lot of people go for groceries. You could go, you could get the milk, the orange juice, and then the cart was big enough to fit a TV if you wanted it. You know what I mean? It's, and there are some studies that, you know, have come up with this hypothesis you know, I think it probably needs a little bit more study, but the idea that the bigger the the grocery cart is, the more you spend, it's because you subconsciously you're like kind of primed to fill it.
2: Yeah, so you got you're walking around with an empty basket like a dork. What am I doing? Yeah. Having my one thing, of orange juice and a pair of socks in a.
1: Oh, so so funny. One time, you know, and I've noticed Costco does this. Is that Costco has you know sort of as a format similar to a Walmart or a, a, a Sam's rather. Uh, but they'll change around the merchandise to different places. And they have this action alley kind of in the middle of the store that has different stuff every time. But it it causes me as I go through it to wander all of the aisles because I never know what I'm going to see. Yeah. And I'm guessing that that's a purposeful uh, behavior that they're driving me into. It is. Uh, yeah, but I, I end <laughs> Absolutely. up sort of making some impulse buys the rest. Uh, one time a business partner and I went in we needed a new flat screen TV from one of the offices. So we, we said, hey, let's just go up to Costco and grab a, you know, grab a TV. So we, we go up there and we get the, you know, that's the first thing when you come in, we, we grab this big TV and we kind of wander through and we're like, Oh, you know what? We need to, you know, let's get some sausages and, uh, like make some sausages, you know, Friday, you know, let's cook them out on the, you know, the back of the barbecue. We're like, yeah, that's great. So we, we just keep going. And then we pass by, Oh, you know what? Uh, I grabbed, grab that toilet paper. You know, we need the and so we, you know, we got you know three things basically, and we're we're going through this big TV and some sausages and some toilet paper, and the cashier kind of looks at us. He goes, "You guys got a big weekend planned?"
0: Oh god, (laughs) not not
1: on purpose, but yeah.
0: It just happens. I mean, if you, I think if you took a moment and looked at what it was in everybody's cart in Costco, and we've always, we've all done that, I think, gone into Costco and somebody gets like one of the flatbeds and gets like, you know, 50 boxes of hot dogs. You're like, what is going on? What are you doing? (laughs) And you just kind of create a story in your head. Like how are they going to use all that stuff? I don't know. So
1: so what are the other, (laughs) what are the other decisions that that companies are making that most of us wouldn't know about, you know, playing on these biases that that we all sort of carry with us as consumers and and customers in, in these in these establishments. What what are some of the other things that, that they're doing?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's it's a good question because you know, again, I think it kind of goes back to this idea that you know some brands are making these conscious decisions, and other brands are just kind of looking at what works, and they'll do more of what works, and they'll kind of figure it out. Like with your Costco example. Um, you know, they they know that treasure hunting, which is what you're describing, where they move things around, especially staples, is, is good for the bottom line. So if you're always there for, like, you know, the big thing, a detergent, and you're going to go find the detergent, but they've moved it. All of a sudden, you go buy a bunch of different things, and, you know, something you see something that's novel, something that's new. And you get a little hit of dopamine in your brain. You're like, oh, my God, mm-hmm. it's new. What is this cool thing? What does it do? Oh, my God, it's only you Know 50 bucks, of course, I'll throw it in this giant cart. <laughs> All of a sudden, you've spent you know $500 at Costco when you went in for a, you know one TV. Um, but yeah, it, it, and there are brands that are definitely you know hiring behavioral scientists who you know are, are kind of coming from like a research or an academic background, and you know, those folks can do like a, a variety of things, right? So they can come in and help design a product, um, you know, whether it's a digital product or you know, like an app that. People want people to use like Weight Watchers, which is now WW has, you know, behavioral science team that helps them figure out how to get people to do something that's healthy, which is is,
2: Weight Watchers changed their name.
0: They did. They're WW now.
2: Okay. So that (laughs) seems like a, that seems mm, from a branding perspective, I know we're not the branding experts here, but just, we're just going with initials now hopefully hopefully people know what we're all about
0: it's a good question i mean i i think the thought process was something along the lines of we're not just about weight we're about healthy living and so they thought oh okay Okay. well you know it's we're an older brand like maybe let's you know rework it and people know what weight watchers is so let's change it around i mean obviously i wasn't a part of that decision all i know is kind of like secondhand knowledge but okay all right well
2: i mean you kind of convinced me they should (laughs) you know they should yeah. uh, consider your advocacy there for PR because that one comment. <laughs> okay, that's not about weight. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but... er, tangent. Um, so when it comes to digital products, how, how are companies applying these same t- – how are they keying in on these biases? Um, it seems very obvious when you understand it how that's happening in a physical store. Um, by rearranging mm-hmm. the store, by placing things in certain certain areas. Um, obviously we can we can see product placement online, but it seems a lot more difficult to execute on.
0: Yeah, it, it, there's a couple different ways you could think about it. So if you think about something like a social network, so a social network, essentially like you know a meta or whoever, their business model is based on advertising. So the more you engage with their platform, the more advertising they can show you. Therefore, the more money they make, the more data they can gather, the more value you kind of bring to them. As, I mean, for lack of a better term, the product, right? So that's the that's the old kind of you know saying, right? If if it's, the product is free, then you're the product. Yeah, sure. So they know that they have to encourage engagement. And I think, and again, this is just my opinion, but it, it seems like for many years it was, you know, engagement at any cost. And so doing things like, you know, the never-ending scroll. So if you go through like a Facebook timeline, it just never ends, right? Now, Instagram, if you notice, has a feature that basically says like, you've reached the end of, the, of your updates. So now you know, okay, mm, I'm all caught yeah. up. This is good. Um, you know, in China, they're doing some things with, you know, kids under a certain age, they'll kind of say like, hey, okay, you've had enough of this app. Like, it's time to go. But, you know, in sort of the beginning times of just understanding, like, what is social media and how do we keep people engaged and how do we do all that, you would see a lot of these sort of infinite scrolls. And they knew that you would kind of have this you know, anticipation of like, what's next? What's new? Am I missing something? So this idea of you know, FOMO, the fear of missing out drives a lot of human activity, human behavior. I don't want to lose like something called loss aversion, right? Humans yeah. don't like to lose. They don't like to miss out. And especially with something like a social media company, there's that social component. And you want to feel like you're up to date on all the news and you're part of the social group. And so things like that, you know, that's engagement at any cost, right? It's engagement at the cost of healthy behavior online. And it's a good example, I think, too, of, you know, especially in a digital environment, you get a lot of feedback, you get a lot of data. People do things just like a retail environment, but like on steroids, Right, you get billions of people using a platform. you can understand really quickly what works and what doesn't um and you know obviously like there's ethical implications there for testing your experience on people. I mean, I know Facebook got in trouble for uh, running i think a b tests on users without telling them, for instance, and uh you know not making them aware that they were actually part of a a split test, things like that what were
2: they what were they testing?
0: Oh, God, I have to go back and look at it. But I believe it was something to do with what we're talking about. So, you know, like engagement, what they show you, how you engage with uh, it. Um, back,
1: back, back up a little bit. What, tell me what's an A-B test and how, how would that manifest uh, itself on a social media?
0: So an A-B test is basically you have like an apple and an orange. OK, and okay. and half the people that get on the website will see an apple and half of the people that get on the website will see an orange. Okay. So that can take any form, right? It could be the color of a call to action button. It could be the background color of the website. It could be the headline on the website, but it's, it's basically a split test. It's just 50, 50.
1: Okay. Now I assumed that that was happening to me anyway. Is that, are you saying that that's something that they should have an ethical responsibility to disclose?
0: I mean, if you want my personal opinion, I mean, I do think that the more we start to use these, you know, cognitive biases, and the more you start to test on users and things like that, I do think that there isn't, I mean, the burden of, you know, disclosure really rests on the, on the brands. And I think, you know, you do get the things like, you know, privacy disclosures where people scroll through and they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. Um, But I do think that they need to design those disclosures in such a way that A, you can opt out. So you know that you're opted in. So you can say like, oh, I want to opt out of all testing. It's not something I want to be a part of. And, you know, maybe not everybody will opt out, but just letting people know like, okay, this is something that you should be aware that is happening Mm. is, I think, important. Um, And I think just, you know, thinking about, again, this idea of like engagement at any cost. So testing is a part of it for sure. But the way that algorithms are designed is really important. So if you think about, um, again, I'm going to use Facebook or Meta now. Again, because they've gotten in trouble for a couple of these things and it's public record and everything. So they're not the only ones doing it. Um, But their algorithm uh, for a long time rewarded. So, you know how you had likes and you have like different emotions on the likes and you have like an anger and you have like, you know, like you have a thumbs up and you have some other things. Basically, when people get angry, it was upweighted in the algorithm. So what happens is the algorithm is programmed a certain way. It's not a person, but it's programmed by people. So it has sort of these cognitive biases like built into it because that's just how people think. So for a long time, you had um, anger upweighted in the algorithm. So the more a post was divisive, it made people upset, the more it would get shown. And then it makes more people upset. And this is more and more engagement. And all of a sudden, every time you go into Facebook, you feel like you're having like a panic attack because everything you see is like, oh, what is this? It's making me really upset. Um so things like that I mean it, I think designers really the more they become educated about um behavior you know like cognitive biases or behavioral science principles things like that I think the more important it also becomes that they start to develop like a personal code of conduct and I talk a little bit about that in my book actually choice hacking this idea that you know are is what you're doing creating value for a customer is what you're doing driving a behavior that results in something that when you notice it isn't, isn't the best thing for the customer, or the user. So it's sort of the action after the action, right?
2: So, you know, what, I, what we're really interested in is how individuals can use an understanding of these cognitive biases and decision-making principles, frameworks to make better decisions in their own lives. And now the mm-hmm. companies are understanding that they're they're spending more time investing in how to, you know, I don't I don't want to say exploit, but but understand our own individual decision making habits. Um, How can how can we as individuals use that knowledge, knowing, hey, this is what companies are doing? How can we use that to better our own lives?
0: Yeah, I I think that's a great question. I mean, it's like a lot of things. Um, I think education is a big part of it. So on so on my site, Choice Hacking, I do talk a lot about all of these different principles and the way that kind of businesses can use them. But there is a flip side to that. And I, I do write a little bit about that as well. It's going to start to become more and more what I write about. Um, because what I found is, you know, I wrote all this stuff about, you know, this is how a business might fool you by using like anchoring on a price tag and you, oh, it used to be a hundred dollars and now it's $20. And what I found was, yes, I was getting like marketers who were looking at that and saying like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, maybe I should apply that. But I was getting, I guess, for lack of a better term, like normal people who would see these articles and go like, oh my God, every time I go into, you know, TJ Maxx or Marshalls, I look at that tag and I feel like mm. I have to buy it. It's 80% off. But now I know, well, yeah, maybe it's 80% off and, you know, maybe it's not. Like maybe that's something that I can use to kind of, I guess, monitor, control my own behavior or just be aware of the fact that I'm a little bit like the, like emotionally aroused for lack of a better term, right? This is a scientific term. I'm, I'm upset. This, this thing is making me upset or this thing is making me feel like I'm going to miss out. And just knowing you know, that those principles exist and being able to kind of monitor your own sort of reactions to things and say like, oh, well, now I know that a lot of decision making is emotional. So when I get emotional, I should probably not make any big decisions. Yeah. You know, I I shouldn't, I shouldn't be making a decision from a place that isn't, I mean, and obviously we can't do this every decision we make, right? If we had to like, if you're getting emotional about what socks to pick in the morning, you know, and had to go through like a list of pros and cons of what outfit, you would never make it out the door. But with important decisions, things like, you know, spending money or buying a house or whatever it might be, like being aware of these cognitive biases, is, is really helpful and taking the time to kind of de-bias your decision-making is helpful as well.
2: Yeah. I think the awareness of the awareness of it is, is definitely the biggest step, uh, it's the, it's the initial step. Um, I, you know, I, Sean and I can kind of understand what, what the follow-up steps would be for those big decisions. Um, when it comes to the smaller decisions, is there anything is there anything other than awareness that we could be doing to prevent overspending when we go to shop at Walmart to prevent, um, making, you know, medium sized purchases, M- maybe it's a thousand dollar iPhone that we don't really want or need, but we buy it anyway. Or is, is there something that we can do beyond being aware of it? Cause, cause it, it seems to me in, in my own practice as an advisor that, you know, if I focus on awareness with a client, that will that will stop a certain percentage of bad decisions. There are a lot of times where people go, you know what? I know that I'm mad or I know that I'm scared or I know that I'm excited. I know that I probably should not be making emotional decisions um, in the state and I'm going to do it anyway. I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, you know yeah. what? At least you know that. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah. It's a lot of self-awareness to even know, like, oh, I'm upset yeah. right now, but I'm going to make a decision. Um, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is, uh, you know, I mean, we know from just behavioral science in general and tons of studies on this that knowledge is very rarely enough to change behavior. A lot of people know things and they intend to act in a certain way. Like, I know exercise is good for me, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean I'm going to exercise. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like there's other things that have to happen for me to make that decision. Um, but things like designing your environment. So it's an old strategy, but you know, the envelope budgeting method, like using cash, like only taking a certain amount of, you know, money with you to the store. You know, you take hundred dollars in cash to go buy groceries, you literally cannot buy yeah. you know, that, you know, sweatshirt Oops. or, oh, you man. know, pair of shoes or whatever you want. You wanted. gotta
2: leave your phone at home too now with Apple Pay. The amount of yeah. times that <laughs> the amount of times I've been somewhere and not have no intention to buy something was not shopping. And then someone's like, Hey, you know, you could, here, here's a little cool. here's a little treat. Oh, I can just, <laughs> I can just double click my screen and now I've got it. Uh, I'm about to delete mm-hmm. the, about to delete Apple pay.
1: <laughs> can you delete
0: it? Yeah. It, it's, it's so tough too, because for a lot of things, like it's really convenient. So I have, Android Pay on my phone, and the reason it got there because I kept it off for a long time, because I, for exactly that reason I was like, oh god, if I can just tap my phone, then yeah, it's all over. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so I'm going to go into the city, do a lot of things, and you know, for many years I was working in London, so I live in a place called Berkshire. It's like west of London. I was doing kind of like the train commute in. And it, you know, then you get on the tube and you're exhausted and by the time you get to the end. It's just a whole thing. But I was forced to put it on there because of the tube because it's so much easier to remember my phone. And there were a couple times where I had just forgotten a card. I was like, oh, my God, I can't go anywhere. Yeah. I can't get on the tube. I can't pay for a cab. And I thought, OK, well, let me just you know put Android Pay on here and I could just tap the phone. And I, I don't have to worry about having a mm. card. Um, so that's how I got on there. And then you know, and
2: never's come un- off. Uncoincidentally. it's stuck. You know, yeah. All
0: of a sudden, yeah,
2: we get <laughs> one on little. We get one little, you know, luxury or convenience in life, and it's how could I have ever mm-hmm. lived? And now it's like I'm not going to delete Apple Pay either because, you know, mm-hmm. Jen, what if I'm driving across country? I lose mm-hmm. my wallet. I leave it at a Love's truck stop in Amarillo, and I don't notice until mm-hmm. I get to Pueblo, Colorado. And then, oh my gosh, I need to get gas. I, well, geez, I gotta have Apple. That's pay. all over.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: I gotta have Apple. And you're apple stranded pay. Yeah. somewhere, and and, and yeah. now I can't escape the you know Sunday morning donut purchase when I'm out for a jog. God, I left my wallet at yeah. home, but I still. And that's exactly up. what
0: happened to me. I was like, all of a sudden, I'm going to Starbucks and Paddington Station. Every time I go in, I was like, oh, wait. Well, it's because I put, I, this didn't happen before. I had Android Pay on my phone. Yeah. And now it's like, oh, okay. Man, if I could, now it's easy. Just tap the phone. If
2: we could figure out, I, I think if we could figure out how to get comfortable with removing luxuries that have been introduced into our lives, um, that w- I think that would solve so many, so many poor decision making behavior patterns.
0: Yeah, I, I think the other thing to think about as well is a concept called friction. So this idea, there is something called the cashless effect. I mean, we're talking about you know these yeah. have-to-pay things. So cashless effect basically removes something called the pain of payment. Mm-hmm. So when you pay with cash, there's a psychological pain. Like, oh, the money is actually leaving my hand. It's gone. There it goes. And it doesn't matter how good of a budgeter you are how kind of loose you might be with money. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an amount of psychological pain when you can see like the cash leaving your hand as opposed to a card where it's like, Oh, it's not, I'll, I'll worry about it next time. Right. That's that's why casinos use
1: chips and not money. I would think, you know, yeah. Mm -hmm. So
2: Sean and I were in, we were in DC, um, a couple of weeks ago and we were, um, like paying the bellhop or something. Right. And they didn't take card. And Sean was like, Oh man, you got like 10 bucks. Like we got to pay him. And I, I just kind of went, oh, and it wasn't because I didn't have the money. It was because I had a single $100 bill. And I had had that $100 bill in my wallet for two months. And I was just looking for like the best <laughs> moment to spend this $100 bill. And the it amount of time.
1: The bellhop at the hotel.
2: <laughs> it, well, that was our only option, right? It was like, oh, we got to go. We got to go to the airport. But it was so funny to me because I had had this $100 bill in my wallet for two months and couldn't find a way to spend it. But if you go look through Mm -hmm. my bank history of how many times I spent, you know, $100 on something or $90 on something, Mm -hmm. you know, there were more than enough times where I could have just laid that down. But it was the physical, the physical cash. Like there's something about this, this bill that I don't want to lose. It's special.
1: Oh, I've seen that too. Yeah. Positive. Yeah. I, yeah. And, I like and that's that idea it, of friction just kind of making it hard yeah. you know, making it hard for yourself. Making it,
0: making it difficult on yeah. yourself. And it's interesting because like, I think to your point, like the world is kind of designed to be more and more frictionless. And then you have to ask your question, ask the question, who is making it frictionless? And the answer is usually a business and yeah. why they're making it frictionless is usually so you will spend more money without thinking about why you're spending money. Like, you know, prime is a, is a great example So initially, like Jeff Bezos went to Amazon and said, look, we need to build a moat around our best customers. How do we do that? How do we build a moat? And that's what they came up with, this idea of Prime. And what they found is not only obviously do people who are using Amazon Prime shop from Amazon more often and spend more money, they'll start a product search at Amazon. So they don't go to Google And say like oh i need a pair of red sweatpants Mm -hmm. they go to amazon.com and they type in red sweatpants and they start and end the whole product search there which is a very different behavior and the reason that they're doing that is because you know it's it's frictionless first of all you get that you know overnight shipping the prime free stuff it they say it's free it's not really free you pay for it every year right yeah um but the feeling of getting free shipping the feeling of getting something overnight it it feels painless it feels frictionless it feels really easy and then you get After Effects for the business where it's like, okay, well, they're not going anywhere else. Why would I ever go to Walmart.com and order something yeah, the, when the, I can go to Amazon? The buy I now
2: button is oh, yeah. Oh, oh that's borderline evil. It's just it, <laughs> in 10 years, it'll be blink at your screen. You won't even have yeah. to push your finger on anything. It'll be smile if you want to buy yeah. these red sweatpants. Huh. And then you yeah. got Give it. Give
0: us a thumbs up. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Throw it in my bank account. It's fine. They'll drone it right to your house. It'll be there. You know, Amazon now I want it. Yeah. (laughs) Tomorrow is too late. I need it in an hour. I need it in 20 minutes. I need you to deliver it to me before I even think that I need it. Yeah. You know, that, that is the elimination of friction. It's like, it's like an Elon Musk brain link chip in our brain that goes like, Oh, I could really go for like some donuts. And there they are before you even think of it. Um, but you know, friction can be a good thing sometimes. Like, you know, having a decision that isn't like the easiest thing in the world to go get is sometimes really good. You know what I mean? Like, and I think it's interesting too, like living. Um, so like I've, I've lived in the UK now for five or six years and I lived in Australia for a year before that. So I've not lived in the U S obviously I've been to the U S but not for a while, uh, for about six years I've lived outside and it's just a very different, um, sort of environment with things are, I guess for a lack of a better term, like less convenient. Like obviously they have drive throughs and things yeah. here. Like it's not that that doesn't exist, but you know, it's much less of like a driving culture. It's much less of a convenience culture. And obviously that stuff, it, I'm not saying it's better or worse. I'm just saying like, if I want to go to McDonald's, it's like they would say in England, it's a faff. It's a, it's a pain in the ass basically Yeah. <laughs> to go do it. Um, it so go I ahead. think it's,
2: it's, it's, a, A that is an example of something where if I have the awareness, I can implement steps in my own life to help make better choices. And as you were sharing that, it reminded me of a client of mine. He, I needed him to like log into his account, do something, and he didn't know his username and password. So I helped him get it set up. Boom, here's the username and password. Mm -hmm. Boom. Okay, he can goes. He goes in and he does it. Then a month later, we're at the same point. I'm like, hey, I need you to go. You know check your account, and do something. He goes, oh, I don't know my username or password. I said, we just <laughs> talked like a month ago. Like, what are you talking about? I said, I even like read it to, you. I sent it to you. I know you have it. He goes, Oh, I deleted it. I go, man, why would you delete that? Like, you know, just, you just miss talking to me? He goes, no, I did it on purpose. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, if I have it, then I can log in and I can check my account balance every day. And I'll Ah. do that. And if I do that, then I'm going to get worried. And if I worry, then I'm going to call you. And if I call you while I'm worried, I'm going to tell you something that I don't, you know, I'm going to make bad choices. Mm -hmm. They go, okay, yeah, cool. Well, I don't know your password either. (laughs) You know, know, maybe you shouldn't have it. Um, But if we can, you know, use that, create friction to make it more difficult for us to have maybe purchasing habits that that we know we're prone to, but we don't want to participate in, that's huge. Um, when you, when you work with larger companies and and you don't necessarily, I'm not asking your name, a specific company, but I'm interested in hearing what you think is the worst decision that a company has made to try to affect decision-making of their consumers or a, a decision that they made that unintentionally negatively affected decision-making pattern in are, consumers are you, are you saying when a it was purposeful
1: decision to lean into biases to to drive consumer behavior but but that it backfired or didn't work is that what yeah, you're saying yeah
0: <laughs> yeah i mean i think it's an interesting one isn't it because i think any any business and i i would say some of the businesses i've worked with like have sort of a i don't know for lack of a better term like a, a bad reputation sometimes that they make certain things too easy or you know they're they're pushing a product that isn't like the healthiest thing or something like that, um, but what I found is I mean the brands that I've worked with have actually been really really aware of you know like hey you know we need to make this easier but making it too easy isn't good for the customer it isn't like what they're not oh, going to wow. be a customer for life and you'd be surprised because most of these brands are very conscious of a what are customers going to think of what we're doing. B, like, how are they going to respond to it? And then C, like, what is the action after the action? So, you know, if I get these these people to buy 15 pairs of sneakers, is that really the right thing for this customer? You know, might be for some customers, because some maybe some customers need 15 pairs of shoes. But for most customers, it's a better proposition to have them buy, you know, one more pair a year for the next 15 years. They're a customer for longer, they'll buy other things. That's not like a specific example, but I think it's something I, I do like to share because I do think there is sort of this, you know, it's it's customers versus the brands. And yes, there are brands out there that do, you know, unethical stuff or, you know, they're not forced to change until, you know, there's there's customers demanding that <laughs> they change. Yeah, yeah. Um, but especially because I work in customer experience. So I've done everything from like, you know, physical, regular retail, digital retail you know, apps, like anything you can think of. And it, I mean, it is hard to change customer behavior. It is hard to change user behavior. So there's also like this other point to make about behavioral science that like, it's, it's very helpful to know this about customers, to be able to kind of see through their eyes and step into their shoes using the biases and the behavioral science stuff. But it, I mean, if I, as somebody who applies behavioral science, could go into a business and say, uh, behavioral science is a silver bullet. It's going to change the way you do everything. You're going to sell twice as much to everybody else. I mean, I would be living on a private island right now if anybody could say <laughs> yeah, that. They wouldn't sure. be working anymore because there would be a dump truck full of money in front of their house. Like that is, there are no silver bullets in business, right? Like context is everything, first of all. So you know, I think when you have these behavioral science principles or these cognitive biases or whatever it might be, um a lot of times, I mean, they're proven out in A, an academic environment. Um, B, they're usually proven in a certain type of academic environment. So a lot of times they're experiments that are done on like college kids at like Harvard, right? Doesn't mean they're any smarter, or any different, but they're, you know, of a certain affluence level, they have a certain set of experiences. It's like, they're going to respond in different ways than a group of folks who like are in Hong Kong or South Africa. And that's not necessarily you know, a cultural thing. There's a context thing there. I mean, yes, culture is a part of it. Affluence is a part of it. And I think you know, for many years, and I wouldn't call myself a behavioral scientist because I don't do research, right? I apply behavioral science. I'm an applied behavioral science person. But for many, many years, a lot of the research around these cognitive biases and things were very focused on a, a certain part of the world with a certain type of person. And I think now there's more of an impetus to get like diverse research and things like that. But the point I'm trying to make is, while these academic studies are really good, they're not bulletproof and they're not silver bullets. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. think of any more like gun analogies. Um, and they had to get tested in the real world because testing something in a laboratory at MIT... While it's great and it's fabulous and you learn a lot of things, if you take that finding and then try to turn it into like, I don't know, a display in a Walmart in Bentonville, Arkansas, it's like, obviously it's a very different context, mm-hmm. it's a very different environment. And with some customers, some things work and other things don't. Like I'll give you an example. So social proof is something that's really persuasive, very powerful. Yes. So it is, I would say, the probably the top two or three. The, the studies have found the most persuasive across cultures, across, you know, age <clears throat> groups, anything you can think of, you know, has somebody else done this? And if they've done this, then I should do it too. Um, but if I've lots of people
2: with, do it. Then no matter how bad it looks to me, then it must be all right.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I found in a few different contexts, working with a few different fast food brands that with food, social proof does not work. People do not care. Oh, like, really, yeah. If you talk about like menu items and things, and there might be other cases where people have tried this and it worked, but every time okay. I have tried it, it's like, Hey, you know, the, our most popular product today is this. And people go like, okay, but I really don't care. Cause like, I don't like fish or whatever oh, okay, it is. Okay. And they're like, you know, okay, that's fine. Like, I know that it's good, but it's not really for me. Um, yeah. It's so like for whatever I, I'll reason. go to the
2: restaurant. I'll go to a restaurant and ask the waiter. So, like, what's your most popular thing here? Like, what do people get when I when yeah. the menu is too long and I can't decide? And I don't yeah. ever listen to what they say. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. You <laughs> just want to know. If
2: if I want McDonald's tonight, mm. and I'm telling myself I probably shouldn't have McDonald's, all it takes is me seeing one person who is eating yeah. McDonald's, and it does not matter if they, it does <laughs> not matter if they are a 500 pound like slob. It does not matter what they look like. <laughs> it doesn't matter that i can obviously the negative he- i can obviously see the negative health effects i will go okay i can have McDonald's. well they're doing it i mean you know it's fine have you ever had
1: the opposite well, you know, effect it- you you go somewhere and you know you're you're the whatever you know the the donut shop or the ice creams you know and you're like oh yeah i'm, I'm gonna really enjoy this this treat and you kind of look around and everybody just looks so unhealthy and and you're just like oh what am i doing i made a poor decision <laughs> Look around, what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you
0: know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, if you think about social proof on that level not working for like a, an individual product, think about it on like a restaurant level. So think about like McDonald's and billions and billions sold or served. That, yeah, I yeah, mean, that was their go. like classic bit of social proof. And if you think about it on a brand level, that makes sense because you know, like, oh, well, if billions and billions of people have eaten here, then there must be something for me. But, You know, it doesn't mean that I want to get what every single one of those billions and billions of people ate. That they got, you know, hamburger with extra ketchup or whatever. Like, it's just not for me. Like, my order is more personal. But the fact that the store has actual like social proof that people like it, or there is like a line out the door, or I am sure you've been to the, you know, the new restaurant on the block, and you kind of look in the door and you are like, oh, is it full? Oh, well, it's kind of empty. So let's try someplace else. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you, you the, want to make sure other people. What do you like think's
1: it? the most difficult tactic that that companies use that is the the most difficult to defend against? As as I go in and I, and I as a consumer, I am making decisions every day, right? To buy, to not buy, to go in, to not go in. What you know, whatever it is what's the most powerful tactic you've seen companies use? The one that just really, really is hard to defend against.
0: As in like when a company uses it, it's like, it's all over. For yeah. Most people. Yeah.
1: Whether it's social um, proof or, or whatever it is.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's it. like, again, like there's no silver bullets, but scarcity is one that can work really well. Um, not false scarcity, because that's a whole different thing. Like, that's that's an unethical, that's a deceptive pattern. We don't do those. Okay. Um, but if you look at a, a company like Supreme, so Supreme or like, um, you know, like Alpha Elite or Gymshark, like a lot of these other brands that are built on drops. So the drop model can be really, really effective do, for getting people to buy. I don't buy. know
1: what the drop model is.
0: So the drop model is basically like, I made 100 of these, and they're going to drop at midnight, oh, and okay. when they're gone, they're gone. They're never gotcha.
1: coming back. Gotcha. Limited supply yeah. kind of thing. Okay.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that from a business perspective makes a lot of sense initially. Like, and you've seen a lot of these companies who started with the drop model now. Kind of expanding into like having to have inventory and things because from a business perspective it's not very practical. But if you want to make sure that you're going to move a lot of inventory really quickly, mm-hmm. that's the best way to do it, right? Is to say like, okay, well, we've made purposely probably less than we thought that we would I, need. I see that
1: happen all the time. Uh, when yeah. I you know if you go, there's a website a travel website where I'll go and I'll. I'll Buy a flight or book a flight. They'll, you know, they only say, you know, only three seats left at this price, or Mm -hmm. you know, something like this. I think QVC does that too. I think on their, you know, this is how many left of the these items that we're Mm -hmm. we're pitching right now. So I, I see that happen a lot. It must be incredibly effective, (laughs) as you said.
0: Yeah, it is. the The time when scarcity is most effective, though, is when it's sort of combined with social proof, right? So. I'll give you a good example. It's like, well, there's probably a couple of ones, but um, there's a retailer in the UK called John Lewis. John Lewis is kind of like uh, like the Nordstrom of the UK, right? So it's nice, it's a little upscale. Um, and you go on their website and if you're looking at something, it'll say um, something along the lines of like, popular 25 people bought this in the last 24 hours or whatever, you know, like yeah. it's some kind of thing around like a lot of people are looking at this or a lot of people have this in their cart. And even though they're not saying, oh, we only have 100 of these and 50 people have bought one, you better hurry up, which would be the classic form of scarcity, the fact that you can imagine other people competing, so this like social component of scarcity, other people are competing for something. Oh, okay, I want it more because I'm fighting out other people, as opposed to just, you know, like, we made 50 of these, like, you know, here, come take one. It's it's like the, I mean, I guess the classic example is toilet paper and COVID. Right, yeah. You don't know why. You go into the grocery store. Everybody's fighting over toilet paper. You're like, I better get some toilet paper. I don't know. Yeah. Anything could happen. The, all these people are fighting for it. It must be really valuable. Or you see people you know, going after a certain product or whatever it might be. And there's, there's just a part of your brain that kind of switches off and says, I've got to compete with these people for something that is in limited supply. I don't know if I need it, but I'm going to so get it just because it I want to be them. Like-
2: like would would um, Jordan sneakers like Air Jordan shoes would that be an example of that because what they'll do is they'll release they, they seem to almost exclusively survive off limited release shoes they've got the Air Force Ones I think which those might not be Jordans it might just be Nike I don't know um anyway they, I don't know that they have a whole lot of like Staple products, but mm-hmm. they'll release one. Oh, there's only 250 of these. There's only 500 of those. But there's there's a million different you know skews right of these yeah. limited release products, and then they'll they'll give or sell I guess one of the initial before the release happens of this new release to um you know an NBA player, a celebrity, whoever, mm-hmm. and then it, the story is oh you know Steph Curry is wearing the it's a bad example. He wears Under Armour, but, you know, such and such player is wearing the, you know, brand new, not yet released shoe. Mm-hmm. And then they sell 250 of them and then it's over.
0: Yeah. Well, there's a few things working there. Um, so it, it's interesting that you brought up that model because I actually did a video and wrote an article about um, Nike. And a part of that article, I was looking at, you know, how, basically Air Jordans became like this classic shoe and like the different sort of principles that they were using. So if you remember, uh, I mean, I don't remember because I was probably not born yet or like a year old, (laughs) but um, when Michael Jordan first came into the NBA, he was a a good player, but he wasn't like Michael Jordan, like we know him today, right? He didn't have the power of of that celebrity. And at the time, the big celebrity players, so yeah, like Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, they worked with Converse. And so Michael Jordan said, I want to work with Converse. So we went to Converse and Converse said, okay, maybe, but we can't give you enough attention. Like you're not going to be a star Mm -hmm. here. And so he was like, okay, that's not really for me. He went to Adidas or Adidas, depending on where you're from. And Adidas basically said, sorry, there's some internal stuff going on. We really can't partner on a shoe. So he talked to Nike and his mom had to persuade him to talk to Nike because he didn't want to talk to Nike because they were a teeny tiny company and they mostly made track and field right so they weren't really known for basketball shoes anything like that and so he finally was like okay fine i'll work with this what are they called nike you know and they worked together yeah. and they created the shoe um, and he wore the shoe in the nba i think for a year or 18 months um, before it was available to the public so just like you see now right so it's it's the blueprint yeah. of how they do this um and as he kind of went through the first you know few years in the nba his star started to rise cuz obviously he's michael jordan he's very skilled and he started to become that you know, like mega celebrity. I don't even think we really have mega celebrities like that anymore where, you know, there's just a few, it's like Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan, and they were like the biggest celebrities on the planet. And he was wearing these shoes and when they would drop them, they would do exactly what you're talking about. So he had the power of sort of the halo effect, right? Yeah. He's a great basketball player. He's a mega celebrity and he wears air Jordan. So I, I'm a kid. I want air Jordans because I want to be like Mike. If you remember like all the different taglines mm-hmm. and That drove desire for the shoe. The fact that just that he had it. But then they Nike basically underestimated the demand for the shoe. So accidentally created scarcity because they just didn't think this many people were going to want this Air Jordan shoe. And that made the Air Jordan shoe like the shoe to get because you couldn't get it. Michael Jordan had it and you really, really wanted it. So it was that combination again of like a few different principles, the halo effect, scarcity, scarcity. And a couple of other things kind of coming together that made yeah. that like such a desirable shoe. And I think, like, probably purposely or not, they looked at that and said, like, oh God, that worked. So how do we do that again? Mm, and you kind of yeah, see it to yeah. this day, right? You put the shoe on somebody, you can't get the shoe, but you see the shoe, you get a little bit of the halo effect from whoever it might be. And you go, so I really this want is that. A yeah.
2: tactic. This is a tactic that's very, um, I, I don't think anyone has an ethical problem with it. Right. If yeah. if I'm gonna go search for a product and I know that they could have made more, but they didn't, and part of why I want it is because it's unavailable, nobody's mm-hmm. mad. You know, nobody has an ethical yeah. complaint. Whereas if a company misrepresents the scarcity and they says, Oh my gosh, only a few, only a mm-hmm. few left, like that. But there's a the hundred. Yeah, but there's <laughs> yeah. a hundred there's 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 plenty. And, and that like, I think the airline ticket example, Sean, is kind of that because it's like, you're not saying mm-hmm. that the the flight's full, you're saying at this price and what you're going to raise it by five bucks tomorrow, I'll be fine. yeah um, But if you lie to me and say, oh, we don't have very many, I don't know if I can get you in uh, mm-hmm. and I find out you're lying, I'm very upset. So yeah. that's an easy example of where the ethical line is. But some of, it seems like some of the tactics, not just the way that we go, companies go about implementing the tactics, but the the overall tactic is, is, you know, usually on one side or the other of some ethical line that we all kind Mm. of agree on. How do companies find that
0: line? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I I think well, I think there's a couple of different things, right? There's this concept of like darker, deceptive patterns, right? So do I design an experience to purposely make it really difficult to like cancel, to get a refund? I hide things that I should be showing you. Like, you know, that, that stuff that, you know, when people are doing it, they probably know it's wrong, right? They're probably mm-hmm. like, oh, this isn't like super ideal, but we want to make it really hard for people to cancel whatever subscription it might be. And we know that if we do that, we can maybe like, you know, get a couple extra months out of them just because they can't figure out how to cancel. But now you'll also see things where basically like you go on, it's really easy to buy something and you do it online and then you've got to call in to cancel something. Like they, they know that that's yeah. kind of shady. Yeah. I think, right? I think there are a lot why. of
1: companies. Yeah. And, and I get frustrated <laughs> yeah. with those companies where they've, they've seemingly intentionally made it difficult to um, cancel the the service, you know, cable yeah. companies mm-hmm. historically, you know, very difficult. Yeah to, uh, to disentangle yourself from what, what, what do you think are the decisions that people get wrong? You know, when, when you go in and hmm. you're making decisions as a consumer, uh, you've got all these, these tactics that are being used against you, uh, to, to guide you and nudge you into certain decisions. Are, are there some decisions that you see people really, uh, fail at or mess up with?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think just getting emotional about purchases is like the number one thing because, you know, there's that metaphor of like the rider and the elephant, right? We have a rational brain, and emotional brain. The rider on the elephant is the rational brain and the elephant is the emotional brain. And the rider thinks they have control. But if that elephant wants to go someplace, they're both going, right? Yeah, and this yeah. is the problem is, you know, when you get into a situation where, You let your emotions kind of take control of the decisions that you make. You make rash decisions. You don't, you know, step away from uh, the environment in which you're making this decision. So a trick that I like to use if I'm going into, let's say, you know, we'll use Nordstrom as an example, right? Go into Nordstrom and you see like, oh, blazer. It's a $200 blazer. Oh, it's beautiful. I always do a mental exercise. And I say, if I pick this blazer off the rack at Target, would I, would I buy this? if I changed my environment and this was someplace that was like a little less upscale, is it still appealing? And if the answer is no, well, then it's, you know, obviously the environment of where I am, the things that are surrounding me, you know, the brand potentially of this particular blazer are things that are influencing my emotions. So I think that's one mental trick you can do is kind of take something that you're really you know excited about and do something else with it. Um, again, I think like impulsivity or I guess compulsivity, Uh, obviously I'm not like a psychologist, so I can't speak to like people who are like addicted to shopping and things like that. But, um, you know, knowing how your brain sort of reacts to buying things, you get like a little, you know, little hit of dopamine when like the package shows up at your door. Is there something that you can do that isn't buying something, but is still giving you that little hit of dopamine for me? Like I'll just put, items in a virtual shopping cart. I never buy them, but they're in my shopping cart and they're in my shopping cart usually until they're sold out. And then it's like, well, all I really wanted was the thrill of putting it in the shopping cart. I didn't really want to buy it, you <laughs> know, or instituting things like one in one out policies.
1: So you're, you know, you're if if I, if you're, I... you're getting that dopamine hit without having to spend the money just by putting the Yeah. The, the thing in the shopping cart. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, that, that's, that's yeah,
0: interesting. Totally.
1: I, I've seen, I've seen investors, uh, struggle with that, that issue on, mm-hmm. uh, stock prices, you know, where is this, I don't know if it's a scarcity or you tell me if it's, it's the wrong bias biases, but you know, if, if somebody bought Nike at one hundred and fifty because they thought it was a good mm-hmm. company and a good brand and a dominant, uh, player in their space and they bought it at 150 bucks a share and then it drops 10% to 135 and they go, Oh, you know, Maybe I uh, make a decision. No, if you if you mm. thought it was all these things at 150, it's a better buy at 135 uh <laughs> unless something else has changed. Uh but yeah. I, but it, it seems to not work on uh, those price discounts don't seem to work on stocks for some reason. It works on tomatoes, it works on shirts, it works on cars, but it doesn't seem to work on
0: yeah. stocks. <laughs> it's the opposite. <laughs> if, if there's a, if there's a price decrease, people
1: run from there like I'm I do not want to buy it at that price. I don't want to buy it at a discount.
0: Yeah. It's, it's well awesome that's the awesome. thing with stocks, isn't it? It's like it you have to like zoom out for it's it's the it's the time part. It's the X axis. Yeah. Yes, the X axis. <laughs> it's um, you know, you look at I mean, I think today was a pretty rough day in the stock market, as I could tell from the all red headlines I saw on the website that I just visited. <laughs> I was like, Oh God, should I check my portfolio? And I'm like, No, it's better not. It's better unknown. Let's just put it that way. But yeah, I, I, I think it's I don't know if scarcity is necessarily what I would call it. Um, I think it's that loss aversion idea, isn't it? Like you spend $150 on a stock and you feel like $40 has been taken away. Even if $60 gets added tomorrow, today I feel like I lost $40. And actually we know that the psychological pain of losing something is twice, a little bit more than twice, the joy of gaining something. So in other words... If I give you twenty dollars, you're gonna be like a five out of ten on the emotional scale. Like, oh, that's awesome, twenty dollars. If I steal twenty dollars, if I mug you and take twenty dollars away, it's gonna be a ten on the pain scale. You're gonna be really upset because that was your twenty dollars and you really you want it back. You know? So I, I think that's probably partially what's at play.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. That that loss aversion is is huge. Um and and that's gotta play some that, that plays a huge role in the disconnect that we have with stock prices and why we treat that mm. investment or that purchase so differently from, from products. Um, I, I learned so much, Jen, from our conversation with you. Thank you so much for making time for us. Yeah, Absolutely. And, Thanks and, for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Where can people find you and, and learn more about how to make better choices?
0: Yeah, I think probably the best place to go is just choicehacking.com. So that's my website where I talk a lot about, how businesses use, you know, cognitive bias, behavioral science principles, and I explain a bunch of principles and things. I also have a book called Choice Hacking. I kept it really simple. Everything's called Choice Hacking. <laughs> a Book called Choice Hacking <laughs> um, about, you know, how businesses again are, are using some of these principles, and also a podcast called Choice Hacking. I am not <laughs> not very creative with the names. <laughs> uh, where you know, I kind of go through, and my podcast is not an interview podcast. It's sort of like uh, little little stories about how businesses apply um, these different principles. It's about ten minutes long. So it's it won't compete with decidedly definitely I did listen <laughs> but, to a few episodes snapable. it's
1: really it's, it's oh, really <laughs> easy to listen to because it, it's bite-sized pieces on these very yeah. concepts that you talked about so I really liked it so uh, so much great <laughs> So my takeaways from our discussion with with Jen, really, uh, I've got four separate takeaways. Uh, One is looking at uh, how do we as as consumers or how do we make better decisions, knowing that we are being sort of attacked by these tactics of utilizing our uh, behavioral biases against us. Uh, So one was sort of the awareness, uh, making sure that we're aware of that these biases are being used against us. Uh, number two is the environmental engineering she talked about. In other words, you're leaving the money at home, leaving your phone at home. So, you, so you're not susceptible to these uh, tactics. And the third was using friction uh, to your advantage. In other words, making uh, making it more difficult for you to succumb to these tactics. Uh, the fourth was just being aware of the emotionality that's inserted into the buying decision, uh, particularly with things like uh limited supplies uh social proof uh so just an awareness of that emotionality and really seeking to avoid having that play into the decision making
2: you know we're gonna we're gonna have to let me go for some time on this because it makes it look like i don't know anything when i go hey yeah what he said
1: <laughs> especially when i roll four of them he out picked four
2: i had no chance <laughs> four, i had no chance to come up with anything original that was it is those four points?
1: <laughs> you know, saying you can't you can't think of anything else. Oh what? <laughs> you got nothing I, after that big, know, long I, discussion. My, you got my, nothing.
2: Here is what mine was going to be: it was was friction. Okay, and that that you can use that a, a business can use that to make their lives easier to increase revenue. But as a consumer, if we're hoping to make smart money choices, we can create friction in our own life, whether it's to avoid habits that we don't want to participate in or, you know, expenses that we don't want to participate in. Thanks for listening to this episode of Decidedly. I hope you learned something I know I did. If you thought our show was five-star worthy, please check us out on iTunes and give us a five-star review. It really helps out a lot, helps people find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. Check us out at DecidedlyPodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at DecidedlyPodcast. Until next time, I'm Sanger Smith with Sean Smith.
1: This is Decidedly.
0: Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.